Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. If you're visiting with us, uh, typically we go straight through books of the Bible. Uh, We are in uh, a series in the book of Acts that we are calling the Empowered Church, but we're taking uh, this week out to uh, thank God for the great things that He has done and celebrate our uh, 30th anniversary and in a sense look at our roots as well, even in this. Uh, the Reformation was a time when the church went back to their biblical roots. And there are five pillars that uh, most looking at the Reformation uh, would see as that which the, the uh, church was built upon. And they are sometimes called the five solas, meaning uh, onlys or alones. And this is what I mean by that. The, the first one typically is sola scriptura, by scripture alone as the foundation of our faith. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia by grace alone, solo Christo, Christ alone, and soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. Now, several years ago, I started this series that I was uh, going to do on each anniversary Sunday, and at the time, I told you I would plan to do that for the next five years, and I actually started with soli Deo Gloria. Um, And then we had a little thing this building next door. And so uh, the next year I I preached instead upon uh, uh, how to stay on mission even while we build. And then last year we dedicated the building. And so now I'm getting back to uh, the series on the solas, the pillars of the church. And to me it's so appropriate. I'm actually going back to the, the first one But how appropriate on our 30th anniversary to talk about the Scripture. Because from the very beginning, well, let's face it, that's where this church came from. Because of the particular view of Scripture as being inspired by God, infallible, authoritative. Scripture alone. And for the last 30 years, that's what we have studied in Sunday school. That's what we have studied in our study groups. That's what has come from this pulpit, is the Word of God, week after week. But it's always good to remember, to go back and, and, and see just why that is the case. And In my view, it's a great time for us to renew and say, yes, that's who we have been, but that's who we are, and this is who we shall be. This is what we hold to. Let's read our text. This is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, in here, you're going to recognize 
some names of places that we've talked about in the book of Acts, and even some things that took place. So here you're, you can kind of put these together, beginning with the 10th verse. It says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Where? At Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. We talked about those. We saw those. He's putting them in context. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, all Scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. What beautiful words you gave to us, Lord. And you saw fit to preserve them. Thank you for that. Today, Lord, will you remind us what you've given to us, why you gave them, why you kept them, why we have them today, and what they mean in our life. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now suppose there's a a little boy that has never met his father. He wants to know about his father. And he hears that there is a room that his father frequents. And so he goes into that room to find out more about this father that he doesn't really know. He go, when he goes into the room, he begins to see some things immediately. He, he says, oh, yeah, my, my father like sports. Look, look, there, there's some, some trophies there. There's a ball glove. There are things that indicate that he's a fan. And then he goes over to the, uh, the music center. He says, let, let me see what kind of music he likes to listen to. Okay, well, there's some, there's some jazz, there's some blues, some classical. 
some Christian music. And he gets to know a little bit more about his father. And then he sees some books in the shelves. And he goes to the shelves and he begins looking at what books his father has read and owns. Again, he sees books about sports, books about nature. He sees a Bible and some theology books. And he gets to know a little bit more about his father. And then he sees a chair that's looking out a window, and so he goes and he sits in that chair and looks out and sees the view that evidently his father likes to look at. And it tells him a little bit more about his father. When he leaves the room, he He knows that he knows more than he did, but it's not enough. And so he goes to his mother. And he says, tell me about my father. After all, she knows him better than anyone else. And so she does. She sits him down and and talks about him. Talks about his emotions, what he's like confirms many of the things that he has seen already in the room, but because she knows him so well, she's able to teach him more and more about his father, and he likes it. And he says, you know what? I, I, I want to meet him. I want to go be with him sometime. I want to know him even better. And then she says, well, there is one more thing. He wrote a journal to you. And so she, she gives him this journal, which he grabs up, and he goes back into the room, sits in the chair, and he begins to read in that journal from his father to him. What he sees is, uh, son, this is how you are to live your life. He talks about various situations and and things that he will face and uh, warns him of some things and tells him to take joy in other things. And he prepares him for his life. And what comes across, he eventually, as he reads it all the way through, he realizes that in this journal is everything that I need in order to live. And it talks about how I can go and meet him and be with him. But the thing that comes out on every single page of that journal is his father's love for him. So he gets to the end of the journal and he goes back to the beginning and he reads it all the way through again and he does that over and over and over, day after day until the journal begins to get worn out. And he loves the journal because it tells of his father. Finally, He's able to go where his father is, 
and to stay with him. Well, obviously, that's just a parable. It's just an allegory. And like parables in the Scripture, I don't want you to press it for too many details, but get the big picture out of it, the big idea out of this parable. And what I want to do in these next few minutes is to share with you principles that I tried to reflect in the parable that come directly from the Scripture that also will lead us to sola scriptura and what that means for us. First of all, in terms of the Scripture itself, we see the Father's general message. I want to read to you from Psalm 8 and Psalm 19. It says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The perfect wisdom of our God revealed in all the universe. Precisely. That's what it is. That's where it begins. It tells us how the earth and the heavens and the universe itself clearly tell us about God. And the psalmist indicates you look up. Look up and you'll learn about God. Uh, On um, public TV, there is a great uh, series that's showing right now. I don't know if it's over now. It was on as late as last night. It goes back to 2010. And it's called The National Parks, America's uh, Greatest Idea. Okay, I admit, there was nothing on TV, and I stumbled across it, but it's really good, okay? It's by Ken Burns, and uh, if you've seen anything that he's done in terms of documentaries, uh, he, he has a way of presenting. And what he'll do is almost like a book, he will present a title and then give quotes, talk about various people, and so on. And in talking about the idea of the national parks and the beauty of uh, uh, Yosemite and uh, Yellowstone, I almost said Jellystone, Yellowstone and, and uh, the various parks, uh, he, he had a entitled... The Scripture of Nature said this is worth watching. The Scripture of Nature. And indeed, that whole section talked about how some of the the early ones that were proponents of the national parks and uh, of preserving nature and, and so on said, out here in this great cathedral meaning out in, in uh, these woods, you know, by these mountains and so on, you see God. It talked about John Muir, Thoreau. Unfortunately, they didn't go quite far enough. They saw what they could, and it confirms what it, it says here in the Scripture that there are things that you can know about God merely by looking around 
at what's out there. But the problem is we can't stop there. It stops too soon. Paul goes on in Romans and says this, Romans 1.20, For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, here Paul speaks of how we can know there is a God and how we can know He is powerful. He's a God of order. There are things that we can know to the point, to the degree, that no one, if they're being honest, can say there is no God. There is sufficient evidence simply in nature, the Scripture of nature. There is sufficient evidence there to say there is a God. But the Scripture goes on and tells us that with that knowledge comes a responsibility. Now, let's go back to our little parable, our little story. Uh, it's like going into the Father's room. God's room is His creation. And in that room, we can find out a lot about God. We can find out that there is a God. There's evidence in the room that He was here. He was powerful. Look at these things. He's a God of order. We look at the seasons, the, uh, you know, the rotation of the earth, the universe, and so on. We see all of those things, and those show us aspects of His attributes, His eternal power and divine nature. By the way, one of my pet theories, some of you have heard this that I, I, I can't confirm, but I think it also shows us that His favorite colors are blue and green. That's just my theory. You don't... We can find out these general things about him, but there's more needed. It's enough to leave us without excuse of knowing there's a God, but not enough to know the specifics about him, like in the allegory. God in his love for us continued to reveal himself, and he went beyond just that general message. He didn't leave us saying, He's a, he's a powerful God. We, don't, we, don't, we can't relate to Him. But He went beyond that. And that is in His living message. Now, in theology, that first point would be general revelation. That's what we call it. General revelation that tells us there is a God but leaves us without excuse that we must, we must relate to Him. But then he, he goes beyond that. And by the way, I always spend time in Advent uh, on this next point. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, but in terms of the living Word. Uh, John 1 says this, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we see Jesus amazingly called the Word. How, how does that fit? What does that mean? Why, why the Word? Of all the things He could be called, why do we call Jesus the Word? 
Well, it goes beyond just knowing there is a God. When Jesus came, we began to know more. Hebrews 1.1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now back to the parable. Jesus coming to show us the Father is similar to the Father's wife. That's why I said you can't press the details here. His intimacy with the Father. You see, that's why, that's why He shows us so much because He's one with the Father. Not figuratively. He is one with the Father. And so when He came, when He took on flesh, the incarnation, and He walked among us, it showed us more. It was more than just there is a God, but here is a God who comes to His people and who not just suffers with His people, but for His people. That shows us much more about the Father than nature did. That's why the Scripture is so absolutely necessary. We can't stop with saying we know all we need to uh, from, from nature. And so Jesus comes as the living Word, and then we see the specific message of love. Again, 2 Timothy 3. It says all Scripture, verse 16, is breathed out by God. Now notice it doesn't say that... He took some really good words, some really good poetry and prose, and he made it something special. He breathed something into that. It says he breathed it out. He's the source. It came from him. He used men to reveal. But the source is God himself. That's where the authority comes from. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He said it to us. He saw that it was recorded. He made a journal for us. Now, how is it useful? Five ways, he says here. Make you wise for salvation. For teaching, that's positive teaching. For reproof, that would be negative, pointing out that which is, is wrong. For correction, that's positive because it doesn't leave us being reproved and not knowing what to do, but it corrects things, the Scripture itself does. And then training in righteousness. And then the question is, how helpful is that? Well, it says it's useful for useful for us for everything we need to know everything for living this life everything for being able to go and be with the father forever it's here in the scripture now i've 
terms of instruction books. I've read some that weren't that helpful. You ever been to Ikea? Well, you know, I've read some instruction books that weren't that great. This, this, the Bible, has everything that's necessary for us. There's no screws left out. There's no steps left out. It's here. I was listening to uh, the radio, as I do when I'm in the car, and uh, I heard one of those warnings come on. And I actually, I wrote this down because it was, uh, to me, it was a little startling. It said this. It was repeated so many times. Uh, This is a test of the emergency alert system. Please set your audio levels accordingly. But here's the thing that shocked me. Underneath that announcement, I could hear this. A young girl's been kidnapped and is in danger. And then the rest of it, I couldn't hear. It was covered up by that big announcement that was going over it over and over and over. The most crucial part I couldn't hear. I've thought about that a lot of times. And in this context, I had to ask myself, how often? How often is it that though we have the crucial message in the church, how often do we send out a muddled message One, that there's something over it that is shouting to our community and that's all they can hear and not get to the crucial message. May that not ever be the case from St. Andrews. But I fear that there are churches where that is the case. Where the message goes out and it's muddled. It's muffled by another announcement of what we are attempting to say. That's where sola scriptura comes in. The Word of God is not gray. It's not unclear. When various philosophies, when political correctness, when uh, various views seem to be winning the day, the Word of God is still clear. It is like that anvil that is there, and it breaks hammer after hammer, and it outlasts them, and the anvil's still there. That's the Word of God. And we must cling to that and not be swayed by these other views that would pull us away from the Scripture alone. Paul tells Timothy, it is so that you may be completely and perfectly furnished for the task before you, the task I've given to you. That's why I've called God's Word His love letter to us, His children. Now here's the question I want to present. What have I as a child done with a father's love letter. 
What should a child do with a father's love letter? Remember the little parable? What'd the child do with the journal? Read it over and over and over and begins to get worn out because he cherishes it so much. What about you? Uh, if you've gotten away from carrying your Bible, I'm not looking around or looking at anybody particularly. How about starting there? That's where it, it, that's where it is. That's where the truth is. And what if, what if I'm up here telling you something that's not true and you don't have your Bible to check me out? That's your job. And so... Use your Bible. I don't care if it's an app. I don't want to hear it beeping, but I don't care if it's an app, all right? But have your Bible. Use it when you're here. But, but not just that. You, you know that when I do funerals of uh, members here, I will often ask the family, did so-and-so have a, a special Bible? And sometimes they say, oh, he, they, he or she used several of them, or sometimes they'll say yes, and they'll let me look at it. I love to do that. Uh, because in there, you can often see um, where they were with the Lord, things that were important to them, things that ministered to them. I've never yet had one give it to me in a box with the plastic still on it, you know, and say, yeah, this was their, this was their favorite Bible, you know. But what's yours going to be like, you know? Like the, the little boys being worn out. Now, I don't want you to go home and start throwing your Bibles around <laughs> or willy-nilly marking up, you know, just so, oh, yeah, because I'm liable to look at that and say, okay, well, I'll... I'll share that then at their funeral. But, uh, but in reality, what about that? That's where his love reassures you every single time you go there. And here's the thing, though. What I think is not the issue. It's what the father who gave you the love letter, what he thinks. What will I do with his love letter? Today's... Anniversary Sunday. 30 years of God's faithfulness. If you've been here the entire time, you would have heard probably 14 to 1500 sermons. Perhaps that many again of Sunday school lessons as well as Bible studies. You put that on top of that. If you had chosen to, during this time, you could have read the whole Bible 30 times over using a one-year Bible or something like that. Now, there's no guarantee, but if you'd done that, wouldn't you think you'd really know your Bible? You should. We should. That's where our Hope and our comfort is explained. We don't worship our Bible, but it takes us to the Father. If not, how about using today as a recommitment to growing in your knowledge and understanding of the Word of God? Now look, 
I'm not trying to guilt you into reading your Bible. Because that, that wouldn't work. You might read it tomorrow and maybe the next day, but by next Sunday, you know, you're over that guilt from Dale. That's, that's not my motive here. I want to remind you how precious it is. I want to remind you that you possess a treasure. And it's the Word of God. Let me paint you one more picture. You're hungry. I know. You are hungry. You're thinking, yeah. How'd you know that? Yeah. Let's go, let's go further. You're not just hungry. You're starving. And Jesus says, come to the table and eat. Not the communion table. It's another table. You sit at his table and he feeds you his bread, his word. It's a feast. You sit down to this luxurious meal. You devour it. You imbibe in it. You eat every last crumb, and it nourishes you. You have been invited to that table. Let's pray. Oh God, will you help us to cherish the Bible, your word, in that way? Not as an end in itself, but as the path to know Jesus, to know you and your will. Cause us, Lord, when we get home, to not just lay down our Bible till next week, but prompt us to dine with you every day and satiate us with Christ. Nourish us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.